Uh, as we turn in God's Word, I'd like to invite you, congregation, to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, continuing our series through the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to consider Paul's words this morning under the heading, Offer Yourself to the Body. Offer Yourself to the Body from Romans chapter 12. Our lesson will be from verses 3 through 8, Romans 12, 3 through 8, but we're going to read the whole chapter of Romans 12. The Apostle Paul begins like this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here's our scripture lesson for this morning. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If in prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never revenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here ends the reading of God's word this morning. May we receive it with a believing heart. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Apostle Paul is going to preemptively correct a misunderstanding this morning. Last week, as we just read, he called us to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he knows that many will hear this message. There will be many people who listen to these words and they will conclude that being a living sacrifice means that church is not necessary. 
that to be holy is to be an individual pursuit. That spiritual worship is more important than corporate worship. Now I recognize the irony that providentially the Lord has given us a snow day on this Sunday and we're not able to be physically here together, but I trust that you have heard these things before. And Paul, a wise sage, of course, was right on this. This is exactly how people have read and understood these verses. And so often when we're reading Romans 12, it's almost like we stop our reading at verse 2. We jump over verses 3-8. through eight. And it's become more and more common in our day and age to have an individualistic view of Jesus. We have an individualistic view of devotion and faith. How many times have I heard it said to me as a young man, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. Or, all you need to, believe, all you need to do is believe in Jesus. Have you heard things like this. Well, one thing I didn't bring to your attention last week, which I'd like to do at the beginning of this message, is in Romans 12, verse 1, I want you to notice that Paul uses both the plural and the singular. Let's look at verse 1 again where he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and notice how Paul uses the plural here, present your bodies. But then he goes right to the singular, as a living sacrifice. We have to present our bodies individually. We all have a call. We all have a purpose. But we bring them together as a sacrifice. That there's not millions upon millions of individual sacrifices, but the individual people come together to present one big sacrifice. One singular, giant, churchly sacrifice. And so no doubt there's an individual aspect to being a living sacrifice. But Paul wants to emphasize this morning the corporate aspect of being a living sacrifice. How do you present your sacrifice? Notice what Paul says, to the body. Where do you present your sacrifice? Notice what Paul says, in the body. And then to withhold ourselves and to withhold our gifts, to withhold our sacrifice from the body is actually not to be the living sacrifice that Paul is calling us to. Here's our theme for our time together this morning. To be a living sacrifice starts in the body of Christ. To be a living sacrifice starts in the body of Christ. I want to show you three points from Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. The first point humility is required in the body. Second, unique roles in the body. And then, third, diligent service in the body. That's humility required, unique roles, and diligent service in the body. Let's first consider. Humility required in the body. That if we want to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
humility is required. You notice at the beginning of verse 3, Paul starts with the word for, which connects this new teaching to Paul's prior teaching. And he says believers, a believer, is not to think highly, or think of himself, excuse me, more highly than he ought. The New Living Translation, another translation of the Bible, puts it this way, don't think you are better than you really are. In other words, if we were to put this in modern terms, Paul is saying to the church, don't be full of yourself. Part of having a renewed mind, part of being a living sacrifice, is being humble. Now pride, of course, is the opposite of humility. And pride can be described as thinking we can do anything apart from God. And the antidote to pride, Paul says, what we should do if we are a proud people is we are to have a sober judgment. You see that in verse 3. Two words in English, one word in the Greek, but doesn't that word sober add so much conviction? It's easy to do a quick evaluation of yourself and to conclude, yep, I was right. It's a quick evaluation that determines that I am in fact faultless. It only takes half a second to conclude I am in fact right and everyone is wrong. little self-deprecation here. If I walk by the mirror very quickly, I could conclude that person is very handsome. But you sit down and you begin to examine and to measure and look at the nitty-gritty and you can begin to see many faults. See, that's what a sober assessment is. It adds a new dimension to your examination. In Greek, it means to be moderate, but we could actually translate it as honest. Give an honest assessment of yourself. And beloved, that's a hard thing to do. My friend and colleague, Pastor Harry Zeckfeld up in Ontario, he, he uh, summarizes it like this. He says a sober assessment is threefold. It's a call to humility. One, it's a call to humility. Two, it's an esteeming one another as better than yourself. And then third, it's a recognition that it's all grace. It's all grace. And that's exactly what we see the Apostle Paul do in verses 3 or verse 3. Notice that he begins his exhortation by stating that he is in fact an apostle. Notice verse 3, he says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, this is Paul's way of saying, I'm an apostle, so you should listen to me. If you flip to Romans 15, verse 15, we see this same teaching. Paul says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder, look at this same language, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He's saying, I am an apostle. You should listen to me. Now boys and girls, do you know what an apostle was? An apostle was somebody who saw the Lord Jesus with their very eyes. They were witnesses to his ministry. And of course, Paul saw Jesus 
on the Damascus Road. They were a people who were uniquely called. They were different from a pastor or an elder or a deacon. They were uniquely called by God Himself to be an apostle. They had a direct, what we would call an infallible knowledge of God that when they spoke, they spoke the very words of God. When they wrote, they wrote the words of God. This doesn't mean that they were perfect. Remember, Peter, an apostle, became a Judaizer. But when they publicly spoke, they spoke on God's behalf. And then the most important thing about an apostle was that they were not called to one church, like Pastor Jacob is called to Trinity United Reformed Church. But they were called to every church. They didn't have one parish. As John Wesley says, the whole world was their parish. And you might say, well, why does Paul begin like that? See, if here at Trinity United Reformed Church, I was going to teach a class on humility, and the whole congregation came, and the first thing I said was, I'm a pastor, you should listen to me. What would you say? You'd say, this guy who's teaching me not to be full of myself seems pretty full of himself, wouldn't you? But the Apostle Paul is not saying, starting with himself because he thinks he is the first in glory. He starts with himself because he, is the first, he knows, he recognizes that he is the first to be tempted to pride. He knows that he was the first to be tempted to pride. As one commentator puts it, if anyone was liable to pride, it was the apostles. And here, Paul is putting his finger on the sore spot. We can all be tempted to take God's grace given to us and ascribe glory to me. To ourselves. As if His grace isn't for service, but self-promotion. This was the, what we call the, ter- the Corinthian temptation. It's what the people in Corinth were tempted to you see this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Why, what do you have that you did not receive, Paul writes, if then you received it, why do you boast? They wanted to see their greatness in the body. They wanted to take God's grace and use it as a means of propping themselves up, glorifying themselves. They forgot that God's grace was given first service, not stardom. And Paul, going back to his apostleship, no one deserved glory more than him. If anyone had a right to say, I deserve some of the glory, it was Paul. Remember, this is a man who saw the Lord Jesus. He was uniquely chosen and called on the Damascus Road. Remember, Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. Paul planted and established churches, healed many people, was an incredible preacher, apart from the Lord Jesus and maybe John the Baptist, one of the most sanctified men who ever walked on the face of the earth. But when he does a sober assessment of himself, when he examines himself, what does he say? He says it's all of grace. Look at those first four words. For by the grace I say to you. 
It's by grace that I'm an apostle. It's by grace that I write these words. It's by grace that I saw the Lord Jesus. It's by grace that I was caught up to the seventh heaven. It's by grace that I have healed and cast out demons. It is all by grace. And so Paul says, it's the same with you. It's the same with me. I say to everyone. Brothers and sisters, do you know what the word everyone means? Trick question. It means everyone. Men and women. Boys and girls. Black or white. Rich or poor. Everyone among you. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Beloved, we need to remember that it's by the grace of God go I. See, since everyone in here has been freely given salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not a single person has the right to boast. We didn't earn it, nor did we deserve it. But by the grace, says Paul, we have received it. And so when we encourage someone, or when we have a child who professes faith, or when we preach a good sermon, that's an application for me, or when the church is full, the living sacrifice must say, it's not me. It's by the grace. New families visiting our church, It's by the grace. Your children professing faith, it's by the grace. Defeated some personal sin, by the grace. Beloved, it is only by grace we are what we are. Once dead in our trespasses and sins, by grace we are forgiven, and it is by grace that we live. Now there are some Christians who would receive this teaching and have received this teaching who say that this means that we ought to grovel. That there is some self-loathing involved in the Christian faith. Do we need to beat ourselves up as Christians? No. This passage tells us where the Christian self-image must be found. The Christian self-image is not looking in the mirror and seeing all your faults, but looking in the mirror and measuring yourself according to faith. According, measuring yourself according to the fact that you are loved by Jesus Christ. Measure yourself according to the fact that God has chosen you and given you a seat at His table. Measure yourself not by comparing yourselves to one another, not by looking to how somebody else has been given grace, but by looking to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. You know, another word of application here is we learn that the Apostle Paul recognizes that he was liable to temptation. And so I want to give you a word of application, brothers and sisters, that is so important. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons boys and girls 
You might be as young as three years old. Would you pray for us? Pray that God would keep us humble. Pray that God would keep us far from sin and keep us close to Him. That we would say, it's all by grace. So we see that humility is absolutely required in the body of Christ. And secondly, I want to know, show you the unique roles in the body of Christ. See, one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church is the body of Christ. To the Romans, the Ephesians, the Corinthians, the Colossians, he says, to all those churches, you are the body of Christ. And this metaphor shows us that we're not just a random collection of individuals like the snowflakes that have fallen on the ground and are pushed into the snowbank by the snowplow and they just seemingly randomly are collected into that grouping, that pile of snow. That's not the way the church is at all. We're not a pile of gravel of individual people who have just been placed together randomly. No, sovereignly, the Bible says. Providentially, God has chosen each and indivi every individual person who is a, a member of this church. He has, knit us he has knit us together, uniting us, tying us together in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says, we are so close to one another, we are so united, he even says, it's like we are part of one another. Another. It almost becomes uncomfortable, uh, he says in verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You are a part of me, and I am a part of you. That's the unity of the body. And this makes sense when you consider this metaphor that Paul brings up in verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. This makes sense when you consider the metaphor of a human body. From the greatest member to the least member, you all have every part of your body has a function and a purpose. They're all interdependent upon one another. And we know this. Consider your own body. If you're walking through the house and you stub your toe, the whole body reacts. Your brain recognizes the impulse of pain. Your eyes dart to see what you kicked. You lift your leg. You move your feet. You open your mouth. You start to scream. The whole body is involved in reacting even when it's the littlest, meanest member of your body. And the point that Paul is making is that not a single decision is made but the whole body works together for good. You see that? The whole body works together for good. And this is so rich. There's so many applications that can be pulled out of this. And I just want to give you a few that are pertinent to our congregation. See, just like the human body, the body of Christ needs to have a common goal. We need to have a unified purpose. If you ask anyone who's had health issues, when one part of the body is not functioning well, it hinders the whole body. So as much as we are able, we need to have a unified purpose, we need to have unified goals, and unified desires. 
And we get those goals and those desires, as Paul tells us, by being present in church when we're not providentially hindered. We get those unified goals and purposes and desires by continually sitting under the Word and being transformed by the renewal of our mind. The body of Christ, this is a second application, the body of Christ needs to care for the whole. Paul expands on this in 1 Corinthians 12, that when, like we said, you stub your toe on a piece of furniture, we don't just get to say, oh, you dirty, rotten toe. I'm going to cut you off and throw you out. You're bothering me. You would never do that. Boys and girls, you need all ten for your balance. Every part of the body is important. Every part of the body is essential to our health. And Paul says, so it is with the church. And just like how we care for every part of our body, even when it's hurting, so we need to care for every individual member. Even those we might not have much esteem for. Third, Paul says, or third application I should say, every part of the body is indispensable. Each Christian, no matter how meager their gifting, is an important part of the body. You're a valuable member. And as much as we are able, we should care for the hurting and broken. Bind up their wounds with love. Give them the medicine of the Gospel and nurse them back to health and prayer. So you see, there's this unity of the body. But we recognize that there's also a diversity in the body. You know, we don't all have the same gifts or abilities. Paul writes, verses 4 and 5, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Just like how not every part of the body is an ear or an elbow, so the body of Christ is diverse. You know, every single one of you has a gift. And you all have a function in the body, says Paul. Now in verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul lists seven different gifts. He refers to uh, prophecy. He refers to serving and teaching and exhorting and contributing and leading and acts of mercy. And if you read that, you might say, well, I don't have any of those gifts. But this is not the only list Paul gives in the New Testament. In fact, he writes out a list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, and 14, Ephesians 4, and we also see another one from Peter in 1 Peter 4. And what we see if you compare all of those is that Paul is not offering a comprehensive list here. What he's saying is that your gifts, the gifts of the body are diverse. That there's a diversity of gifts. And so when I was in college and through my younger years, it was very common for churches to say, well, if you don't know what your gift is, here's a test you can take, and you can fill it in, and then you submit your results, and it'll tell you what your spiritual gift is. So when I was in college, I was forced to do one of these, and when I went to do an internship at the church, I had to do another one. Of course, the results were not the same, and allegedly... It gives you some spiritual gifts. Now I can see some usefulness to this. 
But the problem with these tests is that it begins to shackle us to what we think we can or cannot do in Jesus. They might come back and say, you're good at hospitality or you must be a preacher. And then you see in your congregation, well, I don't have any opportunity for hospitality. Or maybe I don't have any opportunity to preach or whatever else it might be. How do we determine our gifts? One commentator says, a better approach to determining your gifts is to evaluate the needs of your own church and to ask God if you meet those needs and to help you meet those needs. In other words, if there is a need in your church and you are qualified to do it, do it. Part of a living sacrifice is observing what you are qualified to do and filling the need. Not making excuses. Say, I don't have enough time, maybe. Or I don't feel qualified. Or whatever else it might be. It can be as simple as spreading mulch on the garden. It can be as lofty as being ordained and installed as an elder. But if there's a need, and you are qualified to do it, Paul says, be diligent in service. See, that's the final thing. We need to be diligent. The emphasis on these last few verses, look at this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, here's the emphasis, let us use them. The Apostle Paul is not so much concerned about you figuring out what gift you might have, but he's concerned about what are you doing with the gifts that you do have? That's the emphasis. Let us use them. Whatever the gift the Lord has given you, let us use them. Not for our own glory, says Paul, but he calls even your giftings and my giftings grace. Just like Paul's call to the apostle to be an apostle was a grace given to him by God, so God has given you a grace. And he's referring here not to saving grace, but to serving grace. And Jesus, at the cross, gave each one of us His grace. Not that we would just be saved, but that we would serve the body. And so as I mentioned, He lists seven examples, but He could have listed hundreds. Whatever gift God has given you to use, He says use it for the body. If it's prophesying, or as we would call it, reading the prophetic word and preaching the prophetic word, He says preach it. Let us do it. If it's service, helping our fellow Christians in practical ways, let us use it. If it's teaching or exhorting men, if God has qualified you to be an elder, then do it. Or if God has qualified you to teach the younger women, use your gift. If you can contribute financially, Paul says, do it generously. If it's leadership, do it with zeal. If it's mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Whatever gift you have, God gave it to you, not so that you could use it on yourself. He gave it to you so that you could offer it up to the body of Christ. And folks, it needs to be said. God may be calling you to serve outside of your comfort zone. 
Now, for some of us, the, the need very may well be something simple. As I mentioned, spreading mulch on the garden. Going out and pulling weeds, cutting the grass, whatever it might be. But for some of you, God might even call you to go to school. He might call you to get a PhD. He might call you to overture synod to help with our federation of United Reformed Churches. And you say, that's not my comfort zone. But someone has to do it. Some of you older men. Is God calling you to serve as an elder or a deacon? You say, well, I don't want to invest the time. Or I don't feel qualified. Or I don't know if I can do it. But someone has to. Maybe some of you older ladies. Is God calling you to disciple the younger gals? Someone has to do it. Is God calling someone here listening to help out with the youth group? Someone has to do it. When God calls, we don't always feel ready, but we must trust in the old adage that He does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. There's a wonderful example of this in Isaiah chapter 6 when God says of His ministry, He says someone needs to go and preach to the people even though they're not going to listen. Even though they're not going to hear you. Even though they're going to reject you. And Isaiah, they're going to kill you. And he asks the question in the courts of heaven, who will go? Who can I send? And Isaiah looks to his left. He looks to his right. He's the only one there. And so he says, here I am, Lord. Send me. See, when God calls His people to serve in the body of Christ, it's not because you or I am the best, but because according to the measure of, the, of your faith, in Jesus, you are qualified. You're qualified in Him. Qualified in His grace. Qualified in His love. And even in your areas that you are deficient, pray to God that He would give you the grace that you might be able to serve. Well, before we conclude, let us never forget whose body this is. It's Christ's body. Which means that Jesus needs to be at the center. We need to look to Jesus, who is willing to give up His physical, earthly body to serve us. When God the Father asked Him, would you go to earth and would you give your life? And would you take that cup as we looked at last week and go to the cross and bear the wrath of God and shed your blood for your people? His answer was yes. His answer was, I will do the good and acceptable pleasing will of the Father. See, just as Christ was obedient, even unto death, so too does He provide us the example. So too does He provide us the gifts that we need that we might serve the Father by grace. See, one additional application that needs to be brought to you, brothers and sisters, before we conclude, my friend, Pastor Zechveld, pointed this out to me. There's also a word of caution here. That for some of us, our favorite word 
is yes. Somebody asks you to serve on the board of a school, yes. And to coach the softball team, yes. And to do this and to do that, and the answer always is yes. But Paul isn't saying that we need to say yes to everything. He's saying that we need to say yes to God. And that sometimes we need to say no. That can be biblical as well. But we must always say yes to God. And for some of us, our gifts, we have to recognize our gifts and our time will change. When you have four little ones at home, when your gifts and times are different, your gifts and times will be different when they move out. When you're older and you can uh, barely get out of your home and you have to be cautious because of your frailty, uh, your gifts and times have changed from when you were younger. But yet, hear Paul's exhortation, let us use them as much as you are able for the cause of Jesus and for the good of His body. Let's conclude this morning. So we have seen that to be a living sacrifice does not mean that we are individuals apart from the body of Christ. But to be a living sacrifice means that we must present ourselves, must give ourselves to the body of Christ. It starts in the body. And so let us be a humble people who do a sober assessment and know that it's all of grace. Let us recognize our gifts, seeing the needs of our people, and let us be diligent in service as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus as He has served us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks for this day. We pray, God, that You would bless us as we have come together in spirit to worship You, um, even though we are not able to be here uh, physically. We pray, Lord, that we would give ourselves to the body, that we would be a humble people, that we would be a diligent people in serving in the unique roles that, Father, You give us for Your glory, that we might worship and serve You in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.